This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, I'm Kirk Barber, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. Welcome back to our podcast, JCMS Author Interviews. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Christian Murray. Dr. Murray is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Women's College at the University of Toronto. He's a Mohs Surgeon and the Fellowship Director of the Mohs Surgical Program at the University of Toronto. Dr. Murray is also a Deputy Editor at the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. He and his authors published a comprehensive systematic review of patient indications for Mohs micrographic surgery. enjoy this interview because he really does bring this literature view to life and makes the topic so interesting. So without further ado, um, let me um, introduce Dr. Christian Murray and have our uh, conversation. Christian, um, patient indications for Mohs micrographic surgery, systematic review. What prompted you to, to do this piece of work? Thanks for having me, Kirk. Um, this is actually a long time coming. So I've been working uh, with a number of other colleagues um, with various levels of administrative um, people in, in Ontario, so at hospital levels, at the Cancer Care Ontario level, working with the Ministry of Health in trying to, you know, not only Mohs surgery, but all forms of skin cancer access for patients. So trying to develop and improve access for patients and wait times and, 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 and to the various... Uh, uh, methods of treatment that, that each of these patients need. And, and through all of this, um, people have uh, been very supportive. But a common theme that kept coming up was, okay, well, what, what do we need to do? How can we fund it? And what is the proof uh, of each treatment? And it came down to looking at different guidelines and articles. And, and in the end, uh, the Ontario government and the Cancer Care Ontario really wanted uh, to do a complete review of Mohs surgery and look at what's out there, what the evidence is, and after developing and, and reviewing this, this evidence, we can move forward with you know, implementing strategies of care and uh, bringing this to, to the patients in the community and, and, and building them more access. So it really came from not as much as an academic pursuit, but more of a how do we get patients access and what do we have to do to provide the structure and the elements that will have the funders uh, comfortable with this. So that's where the program and evidence-based care comes from. Exactly. Is this, this desire to, to um, set guidelines, if you will. Yes. So, uh, and I see your authors. You have a radiation oncologist and you have, as you said, people in clinical practice, it appears, and people um, in, in hospital-based practice. So did you accomplish your goals? It's too soon to say. Okay. Uh, I think what we did was uh, this, as, as I said, this is really one of the first things that we did. And, and you're right. So I'm involved with this uh, guidelines for melanoma, and we've published a number of great articles in melanoma and anything from, you know, therapeutics to diagnostics to, uh, you know, guidelines for what margins and central node access. And for non-melanoma skin cancer, which surprisingly, because it's the most common cancer worldwide, there's really nothing out there. There's no real yeah. registries for nominal skin cancer. It, it's so common, people have almost forgotten how to measure it well. And the studies really don't you know, add justice to that either. So when we, when we started putting together the group to evaluate the evidence for Mohs, one of the important things that, that, that we felt and, and 
all across the cancer uh, realm thought was we need to get as many voices as we could. So we have pathologists, uh, radiation oncologists, as you said, medical oncologists. We have various surgeons, uh, ENT, plastic surgery, different dermatologists, both in academic and in community, because all of these people treat patients and all of them have a different look in the literature. A lot of the literature is siloed. What I mean by that is the plastic surgery literature will say one thing and the ENT or head and neck surgery literature will say another thing. And then in dermatology, we're always surprised to, to read what's what's written. And so we really want to hear the voices from all of these different specialties. We also wanted to hear from patients. So we had patients that represented. We, we talked to different patient groups and what did they think was important that we measure, that we look at in terms of quality of life, in terms of recurrence rates. So as many voices as we could. And to, to structure the questions, to look at the evidence, uh, and then put together a review. And, and the review, like, like most systematic reviews, this was done in a very organized and disciplined way above my pay grade in terms of statistics and, and, and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And, and, and so a lot of the article, if, you, if you're reading you know, how it was done, was very methodical. And unlike a review that you would do if you're, let's say, you know, just a student looking at the literature, we had specific details which could be included and not included. And this went, you know, this wasn't my choice, but we, we pre-did this and, and, and that's how we came up with the literature and then we evaluated it. We spent a lot of time on this and a lot of back and forth and a lot of the discussions weren't easy. Because people in radiation, when there's not a lot of evidence to guide you, it comes down to expert opinion and how you review things. And people in radiation had feelings one way or another and surgical groups. And so it was not easy, but we we think we really looked at the evidence and let the evidence speak for itself as much as we could. It was extensive. And you only have to go to the journal article and go through the supplemental material like I and like I did and see how extensive it is. I mean, the, the, you went back not just to the 1970, but you went back into the 40s and 50s looking at these articles to try and sort out, you know, well, just see what was out there. And, and frankly, I guess it doesn't come as too much of a surprise to me, having worked in the psoriasis world, um, pretty extensively that the surgical world would be the sort of the same you know we had this whole group of things that we did and we learned from our teachers what was appropriate and we just kept going much like i don't think today we really know how to use methotrexate appropriately in the management of psoriasis much like i'm not so sure that the surgical issues are solved with as you say the most common cancer in man i agree with you and 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 that one of the difficulties is especially with surgical literature, and, and, and ours is no difference in that sense, is that you really can't do placebo trials. Yeah. So it's very hard to do. You don't want to do sham trials. It's I don't know how many ethics boards would approve you not treating people with squamous cell you know, that is invasive. And so it's very hard to know what to do. And when you're a clinician, you're treating your patient. So you you choose radiation, you choose surgical margins based on what you think is best for that patient. And so you know there's there's a there's a bias in the sense that oh the people who get radiation got this and the people who got Mohs got this. You tend to gravitate the more difficult patients uh, for the treatment you think is going to work best. Right. And so the treatment that is working best often treats the more difficult cases and therefore there's it's sort of a setup for having worse results to be a randomized controlled trial is very unusual it's not only is it costly not only have to follow these patients for many many years because non-melanoma skin cancer as you know is very slow growing so if you're going to follow recurrences you really have to follow them at least five years and probably longer and and 10 years is is a good uh, starting point and and luckily one of the randomized controlled trials did do that but 10 years 
a lot of follow-up has to happen, very expensive, and a lot of people don't want to have, the, they, they have an idea what they already want. So in your world of this, these evidence-based guidelines versus so the eminence-based guidelines, is this whole story about, cha- this to me seems that it's clinical expertise chasing a guideline, if you will. The, the guy, you're looking for the, you've got this level of expertise and, and I think uh, micrographic surgery been around you know, 20 years plus easily, um, has a very well-established clinical um, place, if you will, and, and very effective and people understand it is, uh, the cure rates are very high. The guidelines that you've established are going to hopefully support that and appear to from, from this article does that take away any of the weight of this, of chasing the evidence and putting the money towards it? I mean, is it going to change your practice? Well, my practice uh, was pretty rigorous beforehand. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is I was also part of the uh, group. When I say group, it's only two or three people at the time uh, doing Mose in Ontario. We developed the uh, guidelines for what Ontario will cover for Mose right. surgery. So we looked at the evidence of that many years ago, and that's why you know different jurisdictions, certainly in Canada, but across the world, will fund things differently. And in Ontario, uh, which I'm very familiar with, we only will support Mose surgery for specific indications. So uh, you know when you look at the literature in different jurisdictions, particularly I'm thinking about the United States, uh, there, the, you can do Mohs surgery on the leg and different places, and, and it's a little bit looser. Um, in, in, in Ontario, that is not the case. So I guess I, it does support my practice um, in that they have to have certain, they have to be high risk. They have yeah. to be, there has to be a specific reason why you would want to use Mohs surgery over something else. And, and so this guideline falls in line with what our Ontario uh, fee schedule actually supports. Um, but I was unaware of that there was less evidence than I thought there was because when I read large case control trials of thousands and thousands of patients, that's helpful. But that wouldn't that wasn't even captured in our review because we were looking at comparison studies. We were looking at randomized studies. So those huge Mohs case control studies that showed very, very high cure rates just fell away. And they have a place. Mm-hmm. But this guideline was very, as I said, rigorous. So we were only looking at the ones, the articles that I should say were comparing that that met certain, you know, uh, criteria statistically. And so I think I think it's going to be helpful. It, it's not going to wow me and change things for me very much because I, I think our practice was pretty rigid in who we accepted. Our wait list is unfortunately too long, and that's part of it as well. But I think that I hope that when new provinces are able to provide most surgery, when decisions about cost effectiveness and who should get most surgery uh, are, start being applied to different uh, jurisdictions and different decision making in hospitals and other jurisdictions. Um, I think this may be helpful because it provides specific uh, evidence for its utility, and then we'd be able to measure it in terms of cost effectiveness. And that, that's where this is going to go next. So it's what, who should be treated for MOS, who can be treated for MOS, and then how do we get them access for MOS? So the implementation is the next phase, and I'm part of a, a large group of multidisciplinary um, colleagues who will look about how, uh, how to implement this guideline across Ontario because we are not doing a good job of that currently. Okay, so let, let's specifically go to the, the, the point of the article was this comparison between 
wide local excision, standard surgical excisions, and most surgery. And you've got and you set out five research questions. Um, and the first question is: is Does uh, most surgery provide better outcomes than wide local excisions in patients with skin cancer? Now, my non-surgical approach answer to this would be: Well, sure. I mean, that is. I'm not sure that that question demanded a lot of work to answer. Now, you've done a lot of work. Tell me the answer to that question. You're you're right. There isn't an intuition involved in medical care. So, you know, usually what we do is, you know, when you say, is it, uh, tradition is important in surgery. You make a premise or an assumption and you go with that and you really need evidence to change your practice. So the assumption is made uh, and it's a good assumption that surgery provides a chance for cure in these skin cancers. So if, if we assumed originally that surgery is the method of treatment that should be first line, and I just want to just stop for one quick second, and 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 for those you know people in especially in dermatology who are listening who think, well, I mean, we don't need surgery for everything. Absolutely right. This is specifically talking about a little bit more aggressive skin cancers, basal cell and squamous cells. This is not talking about Bowen's disease. This is not talking about superficial basal cells. This is not talking about easy lesions on the on the chest and on the shoulder. There's a, definitely a place for topicals, a PDT, that's photodynamic therapy, EDNC all these other methods for the less advanced, low-risk cancers. But so my discussion today will particularly be focusing on the moderately risky to high-risk non-melanoma skin cancers. I just wanted to say that. But so for these lesions, surgery has shown that is traditionally to be effective at removing them, and you can find, you know, cure rates over time. They're not very good articles, but they are there over many, many decades. So, most surgery, with the ability to test the margins more specifically, more carefully, and therefore uh, you can take a smaller margin because you can analyze it on the spot in real time and take more if you need to, it's been shown, again, with large uh, case control data and, and thousands of patients to provide higher cure rates. That is fairly well known. The, the thing that we didn't know was, is is this reproducible in a, in, a, in a randomized controlled setting? Because if you take a large excision, meaning if you take three centimeters on a small basal cell on the cheek, are you going to provide cure? I think you probably will in most cases, right? Um, unfortunately, you will sacrifice some other things, normal tissue, some functional uh, deficits, and some cosmetic outcomes. But when you're looking at cure rate specifically, you need to decide what, you're, what you care about. And in a lot of these studies, they looked at cure rates, that is, what is the likelihood of the tumor coming back in the same site in a short period of time or in a long period of time? And then they a little bit looked at complications, which are things like scarring and bleeding and how upset the patient was. I think that although our intuition tells us that if we can remove the cancer more carefully, more accurately, um, that it will provide less recurrence and less complications. And I don't think anyone disagrees with this. I've never heard any disagreement to this. The question is, do we need to? And because if we can take a larger area. And so these studies, and particularly I'm referring to three randomized control trials, it's really one data set, but they looked at it over time. So one large randomized control trial was able to show that for certain basal cells in this case, they were able to provide higher cure rates, which we all expected, and also lower complication rates with most surgery. 
So that is helpful for me when I'm meeting with people who don't know a lot about surgery, who don't want to think about intuition. They just want to look at data. And so this was shown to be fairly clear and, and reproducible. So a bit of your problem must be in the definition of high-level versus low-level risk tumors. Yes, it is. You sort of self-define it a bit because, as you pointed out, there's a selection bias towards most surgery for the, what we've traditionally known as high-risk tumors. Absolutely correct. And and so, again, in this in, in our review article, we really tried to stick with the data. So what that meant in this case was using the definitions in this randomized control trial. So they happen to mirror a lot of what we already have put in place in, in Ontario, for example. But, uh, and, and there's no coincidence they use some of these, these features in terms of histologic uh, aggressiveness, the size of the tumor, the location of the tumor, whether it's been treated or not. Those sorts of features are every clinician would, you know, look at those and be a little more cautious in their treatment. Um, but yeah, so we use the exact same criteria that they use for their the entry into their study as our guidelines, because that's what the randomized control showed. That's what we talked about. Now I have some, you know, this, no study is perfect. And I criticize yeah. the study in many ways, but it's the best that we have. And I'm not developing my own randomized control trial tomorrow. So I can't really criticize them too much because they put a lot of work in. But I think it's a good starting point. And to be honest with you, it may be an ending point because people do not want to keep doing randomized control trials that are expensive and complicated if they feel the question may have been answered. So it was recurrent tumors, tumors greater than a centimeter in diameter on the face, histologically aggressive, So, and um, in each zone. That was the other feature that defined in that randomized clinical control trial the more aggressive tumor. Is that correct? Correct. Well, what they did is they broke it into two groups. They broke it into recurrent and primary lesions. So the recurrent lesions had to be at least, you know, had to be treated and, and they were all facial lesions uh, to, in some respect. That was the first group. The second group were lesions on the face that were primary, so untreated uh, basal cells, but they had to have other features, just as you mentioned. So aggressive features in size, location, uh, histology, or they had to be recurrent. And they, and they analyzed those two groups differently. That really is the answer to your second research question, so the clinic about clinical characteristics and indications. You're, then you go on to try and incorporate the radiation oncologists. Um, it doesn't appear they have any more literature than we do. In fact, there wasn't a lot of literature, comparative literature for sure. So radiation, in my way of thinking was, and maybe tell me if it still is, is for those people that aren't good surgical candidates. That is true. There was literature on radiation oncology, none that was good enough to incorporate. Okay. So even when they had comparison trials, and there was one specifically that I had used it, as in when I give talks and when I talk to people about it, there was a surgery versus radiation trial done, and it showed that surgery provided at least, if not better cure rates and better cosmesis. So it, the patients thought the area looked better with surgery than it did with radiation. But, and it's interesting when we had radiation oncologists on the panel, they, we threw this out because they, they felt that a, a number of the patients in this study were treated with brachytherapy, uh, which is a specific type of radiation that is not as often done. And we still do it in Ontario. Places do different things. But because they felt that that was overrepresented in the trial compared to what they think should be done, that would not be fair to the radiation literature. So we actually excluded that study. 
I, I didn't agree with that because I thought it was one of the only <laughs> articles we had out there. We could have put a disclaimer in, but again, that's why we have uh, different disciplines on the on the panel to discuss and disagree with and come up with a solution. And they felt that because the brachytherapy was not something we use as standard of care in Ontario, and that we should exclude that paper because it had a number of brachytherapy cases. So, so you're right. Their, their literature, I don't want to say worse, but it is no randomized trials. It is no really what you should do, no guidelines that are based on a thorough evidence. Okay, well, listen, this has been a great um, walk through um, most surgery for basal cells. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our audience has as well. The takeaway is that this is advanced surgery. This is, you need to know what you're doing. And um, thank you for taking the time and energy, not just to meet with us, but to do this uh, very extensive literature review. Now, the good news is, of course, that it supports the traditional training and traditional thinking, which is always a good thing. If it had come out differently, um, I think it would have we'd have to examine be re-examining one or the other um, of the two, either the the literature or our practices. But it doesn't strike me that we need to. Is that a fair statement? I, I think there's always work that could be done to you know improve the literature. As I said, we're relying on small data sets, in, although they're long data sets and they're complicated. But you know, one of the things that we're trying to do, and, and I should say that this was for basal cell. So one of the, we didn't even talk about squamous cell, which is a higher stakes yeah. situation, and there's no literature on that at all. So although the basal cell randomized control trial is important. Um, squamous cell carcinoma, which you could think is actually more important because the stakes are higher. People die of metastatic disease in the transplant community. This is an epidemic and it's just going to get worse, but there's really no data on it. Now our paper says, you know, probably works for squamous cell like a desert basal cell because it makes sense intuitively, but there needs to be work done on that for sure. And, 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 and we're seeing a lot more squamous cells. I know in my practice and I'm sure most surgery and dermatologic surgeons across Canada and in, in, in regular dermatology are seeing more squamous cell in various respects. And we would like to know how to treat them. Not only the middle of the range ones, which often go to Mohs, but the advanced ones. So the ones that come and there are four centimeter squamous cells, who gets CAT scans of the neck? Who gets, um, who needs to see an ENT surgeon? Who should see radiation oncology? There are new treatments out, PD-1 inhibitors. It's an exciting time to be working with these advanced squamous cells as well. And this article only touches on it because there's so little evidence there. Now, I think most surgery can provide a great first you know, step for these advanced or aggressive squamous cells. But that's one area where I'd really like to see a lot more work done. And I think as was seen in psoriasis and as is now being seen in melanoma with some new immunotherapies and some of the more advanced systemic therapies that are coming on board, people are gaining more interest to know when these should be used, how they should be used, and how surgery and radiation can be used in conjunction with them. Because it's an unmet need. Squamous cell, I think, is a real unmet need, and I'd like to be a part of the advances in that. Is there work now through the program and evidence-based care to look at squamous cell carcinoma and try and do something like this to help those of us out in the community define this really dangerous tumor. Yes. And well, this this guideline would have captured it. So there's no evidence for any surgical therapy, any radiation therapy, or Mohs therapy in comparison in a well-researched uh, article. 
There's nothing. So th this are, this was not a basal cell study. We looked at dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans, DFSP. We looked at AFX. We looked at melanoma. We looked at squamous cell. And although most surgery provided advantages in all those tumors, it, anything that requires margins, if you have good marginal analysis, it works. But the evidence was not rigorous enough to make specific recommendations, meaning there was no randomized control trials in any of those other tumors. All there was was pretty good evidence. So in our, in our review, we say, you know what? It probably works really well for DFSPs. All evidence suggests it's the best out there, but we just can't say because there weren't very good articles. Melanoma, uh, in situ particularly, the same thing. Squamous cell, it's so close to basal cell and it's, you know, it's contiguous. It's so common. It's on the face, the same regions, all mostly the same risk factors. We even say that it, we're very, very confident it's the same data, but we can't really say because the studies haven't shown it. So, again, this wasn't a basal cell article. This was a Mohs article. It was looking at all the melanoma skin cancer uh, uh, treatments, but nothing came out. So, we, you know, squamous cell, we need it. We just really need it because it's so common. It's going to get worse. Um, and I think it will, uh, we will get some data soon again, because as I said, some of the new therapies that are coming on board soon, they will push it. They want to know, they want to know, can we use, if we do Mohs on this, can we add in a PD-1 inhibitor later? Does that reduce the chance of regional METs? And, and I think I'd like to be part of those kind of studies because I, this is, I see, I don't know the numbers, but I'm going to say one a month that people have to go on to get regional disease treatment because they have metastasis. So it's quite, in my practice, quite common. Then again, I see some advanced tumors. I also see about one a month that I see them and I know they're beyond my care already. They already have metastatic disease. They already have regional advanced disease and they need a commando approach. And I have great colleagues who work so well back and forth with patients on. I sometimes clear the skin and then they go in and remove bone or they remove neck and they remove all these other anatomic structures we've forgotten since medical school. But it's, it's really great to collaborate with these world experts that I happen to have on speed dial. But I would just like to see better evidence uh, for this. And maybe I'm dreaming because I know how hard it is, but that's where I see is the next step. Well, when you get it, um, let us be your platform. <laughs> Thank you, Kirk. Thanks again. Appreciate Cheers. It. Thank you. Bye now. You've been listening to my interview with Dr. Christian Murray. And Dr. Murray is an associate professor of medicine at Women's College at the University of Toronto, a Mohs micrographic surgeon, and the fellowship director of the microsurgical program at the University of Toronto. Dr. Murray and his co-authors have provided us with a systematic review, looking at the literature for patient indications for micrographic surgery. This interview really brought forward the difficulties in producing such a, a, a documentation. It was a multidisciplinary group of authors, and each undoubtedly had their own opinion. But the literature was well-reviewed. In fact, insanely well reviewed and I think at the end of the story we really have very nice evidence-based indications for micrographic surgery. I'm Kirk Barber, thanks for listening and until next time be good to each other. This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Bosch Health made available 
through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program.